Hi, my name is Stephen Lee. My mother is originally from Argentina, and she used to tell us a story about El Hombre del Saco, which is a man that comes around and gets bad kids and puts them in a sack. Now, she used to tell us this when we were kids to scare us that El Hombre del Saco will come and get you, and basically this man will climb through the window with long arms, dirty, look like a vagrant, stuff you in a bag, take you down by the river and beat you against the rock. It doesn't... Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of you back. I was thinking about it today and I just wanted you all to know that seriously, were we ever like to bump into each other in a bar or a cafe or a grocery store, whatever, and someone was giving you a hard time and I could see them and I knew it, I would Definitely engage in fisticuffs for any of you. Fisticuffs? I would. I'd get scrappy. Why are you condoning violence? I'm not condoning violence. I'm just saying if anybody messes with one of my listeners, they will have hell to pay. Well, that's a hell of an affirmation. I've never been in a fist fight before. Thank God. But I think I'd be really good at it. You're scrappy. I do want to thank everybody coming back and want to encourage all of you to go on iTunes, leave ratings and reviews. I do want to thank... Emmy Faye for leaving a nice review. We always appreciate that. Come on. They're the best little affirmations ever. It's like, oh, it's a, like a fortune cookie. You never know what you're going to get. Okay, no, that's Forrest Gump. Did you just get Mandela affected? But no, they're just like little surprises. You never know what's going to be there. You're right. True, Mama Gump. A little more than you expect. A little extra. A little something you forget you have while you're eating the rest of your Chinese food and then you discover it's there and you're like, no, this is really what I wanted all along. And for for other fun surprises, you can check out our social media where you'll see some different things pertaining to the episode of the week or from past episodes. And it's also a great way to reach out to us. And you can also reach out to us by sending an email or going to our website. You can comment there if you'd like to. You can also contact us through links on the site. And there we have a catalog of all of our past episodes where you can listen. Some of them have galleries. All of them have sources and just additional info. And my illustrations live there. So that's where they go when they're no longer being circulated on Twitter. They go and hang out, keep each other company. And you can also check out our merch store on the site where we have our new monthly shirt up. Yes, we do. It is a Schrodinger's cat shirt. So check that out and some of the other fun gear we have there. Um, there on our website, you can also find links to our Patreon page. And that's where you can become a sustaining member and help support the show. We would love it if you would like to do that, and we will send you a sticker. And you'll get access to other fun prizes as well. And one more way to reach out to us is the Urban Legend Hotline. The Urban Legend Hotline is a place you can call and tell us all about your favorite urban legends tell us a joke drop us a line or you know just talk out that thing that happened in class last tuesday whatever you need uh but just call 512-222-3375 and we will listen to your tale so sam back to the story at hand (gasps) 
But it's scary. It came to us from the Urban Legend Hotline. It did. It did. And now I need to learn to read Spanish because I wanted to do way more research about what came in on the Urban Legend Hotline. And there was sort of a firewall there called not being bilingual. That's very unfortunate. It was. But today we had a listener call in telling about their childhood boogeyman. (gasps) Did you have one? Yeah. And I couldn't. I don't know what its name was. I can't remember it. It was in French. It wasn't Lugaru? No. It was like a woman with like long fingernails. I did not have one unless, unless you count growing up Southern Baptist and really, truly, sincerely lying awake at night and not being able to sleep for what I remember as three years, but it probably wasn't because I was afraid the devil was going to come get me. That's a boogeyman. Okay. Fair enough. I didn't know if he counted. Of course he does. He's the ultimate boogeyman. Okay. You know, I mean, boogeyman have changed over time. You know, what we consider to be a boogeyman can be the devil, monsters, other scary things. Can it be a dude? Or is it always supernatural? It usually has a supernatural quality to it to make it a boogeyman. And not a dude. Nowadays, you can see people using it in reference to a dude. people. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's just a modern use. It's a metaphor. The boogeyman we're starting off today's episode with is Hombre de Saco. Okay. That sounds like a man with a bat. Is it Santa? Not exactly. Okay. So in Spain, you have a hombre de Saco, and it's usually depicted as a mean and very ugly, skinny old man who eats the misbehaving children that he collects. Mm-mm. That seems like a, a, an unwarranted escalation. I, I mean, I know kids can be awful, but... Exactly. This is the tale that adults and parents have been telling children for a long time. Do you think it would work on our kids? We've never tried it. Oh, we did. Yes, we have. Yeah, we did. I forgot. I forgot I did that. (laughs) The Crimson Clown. I may or may not have terrorized my, at the time, five-year-old pretending to be a character from an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. So this character has gone from Spain to South America, Central America... And, of course, the U.S. as well. And it's this, like, vagrant male character that takes disobedient children, might go to eat them, Mm. maybe sell them. Mm. To who? Whoever's paying the most. I don't want. No, don't do that. I think I'd rather be eaten than sold. I don't know. But, you know, like all of these characters, they come at night. They come at dusk. Now, El Hombre del Saco is very closely related to Coco or Cuckoo or Koi Koi or... That sounds friendly. It, it sounds too friendly. Now, this iteration of the boogeyman character is found in Hispanic and Lucifone areas. Where's Lucifone? Lucifone is not a place. It is a state of mind. Oh, okay. Actually, it's a state of language. It's uh, Portuguese speaking. Oh, okay. Much like Hispanic. I understand. Okay, got it. All right. And it's not an ethnic category. Purely linguistic. However, he is a mythical ghost monster creature. And in some tellings there's a male character who is coco and there's a female character who is coca but it really doesn't matter because they're a representation of the same being and the name is sort of a slang term of sorts for a skull oh, okay and so you see it depicted with sometimes coconuts and you see it depicted with pumpkins like jack-o'-lantern kind of thing yeah, like when you have like a coconut head sometimes yeah sometimes yeah now, in many Latin American countries, this monster is referred to as Cuco. In northern New Mexico and southern Colorado, there's a very large Hispanic population, and they call him 
the Cocoa Man. And he brings some chocolate milk? No, he does not. And in Brazilian folklore, this is a fun one, the monster is referred to Cuca and is pictured as a lady slash alligator. What? Why? Because Coca is the Portuguese word for dragon and alligators kind of look like dragons. Interesting and scary. Right. The tale of Coca originated or Coca originated in Galicia, which is on the Iberian Peninsula in Spain, as well as Portugal. And it's a cautionary tale used to frighten children. He is also a child eater and kidnapper, because that's just what you do if you're a good boogeyman. And he might show up to eat a child, or he might just take them away and never bring them back. Sometimes, you know, the the parents' bravery in telling this horrible story might trail off, is actually what that translates to. (laughs) Like, like, they're going to eat you really? No, no, I mean, they might no, just, they might take, just you. take you away forever. You don't understand forever, okay? Mom, I can't sleep. <laughs> oh, God. Where is he? <laughs> now, while he is a threat to children, it is important to note that he is only a threat to bad children or disobedient children. Of course. And now he watches from the roof and tries to ascertain whether or not they are minding their parents and sleeping when they're supposed to sleep. Sees if they're naughty? No, mostly he's a sleep thing. Like, it's not just naughty. It's like everything I've read, especially in the early iterations, are like, it's about sleeping. And they watch the child kind of constantly and are sort of the opposite of a guardian angel. They're just there to watch and make sure you don't fuck up. Technical job description. But if you do, they don't help. No, they don't help. They Uh eat you. And while he's normally sort of a preternatural being... Sometimes he is a ghost of a local dead person. I guess if you have a suitable local dead person to reference. That just makes it even more disturbing. Right? I agree. Now, the oldest known written down version of the Coco lullabies. Yes. Yes. It's from the 17th century, and it translates roughly to sleep child, sleep now. Here comes the Coco, and he will eat you. Oh, that's so sweet. I think I'm going to adopt this nursery rhyme slash lullaby. And there's another one. Leave Coca, leave Coca. Go to the top of the roof. Let the child have a quiet sleep. So he's a charming character. It's kind of like a nondescript amorphous character in Europe. It can change. The only consistent thing about him is that he is unsightly, ghastly, horrid. And steals children. And steals children. There are versions where there are giants. There are versions where he is a dragon and there's like a fighting of Coca and St. George. You know, it takes on many different forms. However, as it has migrated across the Atlantic, it has changed again. And I found this really interesting article from Brownsville Herald in Texas from 2005. Which is on the border. Right. It is the border town. And so this is kind of the modern Chicano use of the monster. Dateline, Brownsville, October 31st, 2005. It is a name whispered in hushed tones for mothers. It is the ultimate threat that keeps their sons and daughters in line. For children, it's the bogeyman, a closet monster and their worst nightmares rolled into one hideous being. It is El Cucoy. Walk down any market in Brownsville or Matamoras and you can hear mothers invoke his name. Portate bien, o take nada, el cucuy, they say. Behave, or the cucuy will get you. Fathers traditionally tell their children that there's nothing under the bed or in the closet, while mothers tell the child to fear the cucuy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Social sciences professor Manuel Medrano said popular legend describes the Kukui as a small humanoid with glowing red eyes that hides in closets or under beds. God, that's creepy. Yeah. I'm not sleeping tonight. You weren't anyway, let's be honest. Our kids will be up. Because <laughs> you told them this damn story. Um, just three times. Now, interestingly, that this version of the monster has evolved to be smaller and it's usually kind of hairy and it has the red eyes, which are all features absent the European origin. It's actually kind of more like descriptions you hear of El Chupacabra. Mm, fuzzy coconuts. Coconuts again? You never know. But he's always sort of childlike. Like it's always like in some of the legends, it's a child who misbehaved and was punished by becoming this thing. In some cases, it's a child who was abused and never had the nice things you have. Yeah. And you need to eat your dinner. Yeah. And go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> Or this ghost child thing will come and eat you because he's hungry because he never had good food, I guess. He's childlike. The red eyes are very consistent. And he's always somewhere between life and death. Not really a ghost. Not really alive anymore. Kind of a maybe a zombie. I don't know. Now, mockumentary filmmaker Henry Serrato, who made Search for the Chupacabra, which I want to see, <laughs> said Mexicans don't practice time out. <laughs> so they put the fear of the bogeyman, the Chupacabra, a la Llorona, in their children. Serrato said, over time, the Chupacabra got tied with Hispanic culture, even though he's not been around that long. That's interesting. Now, the cannibalism element remains pretty consistent throughout all of these stories. It goes back for, I mean, ever, but it really became rooted in Europe with the writing of the Malleus Maleficarum. Yeah, the witch hunting Bible. I don't think they'd like you to call it that, so do it again. But, <laughs> but when they nail down like the procedures and practices of witches, the witches actually made practical use of children's bodies, dead child bodies, because that's the most horrible thing you can think of, right? Definitely. So they would use baby fat to rub on their bodies in order to fly, uh, but that's how they fly. Magic baby fat? Yes. Good to know. And they would eat children at their gatherings because why not? And you can see depictions of these witches and this very European tradition in the works of artists like Albert Dürer and Salvatore Rosa. It was very well established in both German and Spanish art. And you'll see these ideas of cannibalism come back again and again with all of these boogeymen that we're going to talk about today. I'll eat you up. I love you so. So that tradition of child-eating boogeyman is consistent around the world. So let's go around the world. Little trip. Everybody, get in the bus. Yes. I'm not sure what this magic school bus would turn into. A chupacabra. So in Egypt, you have the Abu Uigal Masluka, which means the man with burnt legs or skin. What? So this was a child who did not listen to his parents. And became badly burned. They were like, hey, don't go near the fire. You'll yep. get burned. Mm-hmm. And the kid was like, I'll show you. Didn't. Didn't go well. So now he kidnaps children who will not obey their parents, taking them to his home and cooking them for breakfast. Well, it seems that he's mastered fire. So there's another one in Korea, the Kotgum. And so this boogeyman has a kind of folkloric story behind him. So a mother was trying to stop her child from crying. Mm-hmm. And told the child that if they did not stop crying, then the mom was going to feed him to a tiger. Yeah. So, a tiger was passing by, as you do. Just on his way to work. Yeah. Just daily yeah. commute. Yeah, normal thing. Office job. 
And he heard the threat. Right. And, and he was like, I can be late. Todd's oh, not in the office today. We might get a snack. Okay. So he waited patiently. So the mother did get fed up with the kids crying and offered the child a persimmon. Yeah. Unabashed bribery is the key to parenting. So mm-hmm. she's like, he wouldn't shut up when I threatened to feed you to a tiger. Maybe he'll shut up if I give you something nice to eat. Yes. And so she offered him a kotgum. A boogeyman? She offered the child a boogeyman? It means persimmon. Uh-huh. So she gave him a nice little treat of persimmon and the baby stopped crying. Now the tiger heard this and was very concerned about what a kotgum could be. Because it, it made the baby stop crying. Yes. And it must be even more fearful than a tiger. So now the kotgum is seen as an old man that carries a mesh sack and comes and takes naughty children away. Did that just happen over time or did... Yeah, yeah, it just kind of transformed over time. Interesting. I mean, who knows if, you know, I mean, it's a folktale. I guess, I mean, when the tiger repeated it around the water cooler, once he finally made his way to the office. I mean, wouldn't you buy it if a tiger was telling you there's this creature, you should just see him? Yeah, no, definitely. They're scary. Now there is uh, one from Quebec. Uh Uh-huh. And there's Le Bonhomme Septeur, being the seventh hour man. So here's what a French-Canadian informant has to say. May. French-Canadian. Oh, sorry, sorry. So they would talk about how Le Bonhomme Septeur would come out there. And the legend is that he was this old man that had like a big hat and a big coat because it's cold up there and he'd carry a sack. And sometimes little kids would end up in the sack if they were being bad. And then what happened? So he says the legend goes back to very old times. Probably sometimes in the 1800s before when French Canadian and French speakers were kind of second class citizens. Okay. And so they lived in the you know poor part of town and every once in a while the doctors would come in, see if anybody needed help. And so the doctor would come to set broken bones and of course that was usually accompanied by lots of screaming and you know, crying and whatnot. Because setting broken bones is really painful. Is that true, doctor? It is. <laughs> okay. Medical fact. So the bone setter, as they say in English, became loosely translated to Le Bonhomme Septeur. The Seventh Hour Man. Which is a scary name. It's a scary name. And if you think about, like, usually it's after seven o'clock when they come. And if you're Mm. out, you're not back for dinner, you're going to get in trouble. Yes, it all makes sense, actually. That one makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. More sense than the tiger and the persimmon. I think that makes sense, too. Mm. We need to talk about sense. So obviously today we are going to talk about boogeyman or or bogeyman or or booger bears or bugaboos or, or, or so bug many bears names. or hugbug. No, they're not hugbugs. Humbugs, hobgoblins. So as I often do when I wonder about etymology, I turned to the late great William Sapphire, and he's written a little bit on the subject for the New York Times Magazine in 2004. And because it's William Sapphire, and you can't really do one little pull quote. Let's read it. It's apparent that the boogeyman, bogeyman, and in the U.S. South, boogerman or bugabear is a monster, evil spirit, hobgoblin, or chimera, racing through our language, used by nefarious alarmists to frighten small children and innocent voters. He is known to Germans as the bogelman, to the Irish as the boken, to the Scottish as the bogert, to the Icelanders as the linguistically related pookie, the earliest citation I can find is in Old French around 1200 as Bougabou. And in the Middle Ages, the dark figure's name became synonymous with the devil. One of those names was Old Bogey. There could be a connection with the scarifying Boo. In the 1920s, because of the longtime association with blackness, Boogie became a racial slur. 
It appeared as a derogatory noun in the dia- in dialogue and novels by Dashiell Hammett in 1929 and Ernest Hemingway in 1937. Come on, Hemingway, get it together. Man, it was a rough night. Excuses. Yeah, he was good at those. He was really good at those. In mid-1920s, however, black jazz pianists came up with a percussive style of blues marked by a heavy rhythmic bass in quadruple time that they called the boogie-woogie, perhaps based on West African boogie-boogie, to dance. The reduplication may have ameliorated the slur. The 1940s as a verb to boogie was synonymous with to cut a rug, later applied to energetic dancing without regard to race. And it does first appear as... Bug or boog. Some people think it might be related to like the term bug. Bug is a derivative of an old form of hobgoblin. Yeah, it's interesting. So like that all kind of ties together. The anyway, booger bear. No, all that matters. <laughs> no, all that matters. No booger bear. I wouldn't want to see a booger bear. I mean, my, I remember booger was used to describe like. Oh, you need to be careful or there oh, yeah. a booger will get You're you. Right. Yeah. But it, like when my dad says it, it doesn't sound like like pick a booger. I don't know. It sounds scary. <laughs> so boogeyman have been around forever. And obviously we we say naturally boogeyman. We don't say bogeyman. That's just what we grew up with. Yeah. But they're all correct. <laughs> all very wrong. Yes. And parents have been using this to get kids to behave. Eat their vegetables, go to bed, don't hit your sister, whatever. But kids also use it as a form of play, too. Yeah. Kids like to scare the shit out of each other. It's kind of what they do. So in the 1960s, anthropologist Gregory Bateson developed a theory of play where children play to test limits of safety and play with the idea of the terror of death, murder, torture. He sounds like fun. Oh, yeah. Good times. <laughs> you see how they're they're building those blocks over there and knocking them down. They're confronting the idea of global pandemics. <laughs> well, I mean, think about how we use fear. We love to be scared. But not too scared. In a safe way. Right. In a way that, that provokes fear, but not in a real sense of danger. So, like, why people listen to our show, maybe. Yeah. Or ride roller coasters or, or watch scary movies. But mostly listen to our show. That's the important one. Yeah, it's key. But like an example, one of the kids said, when we play monsters and mummy catches me, she never kills me. She only tickles me. She sounds like a good parent. (laughs) I think that's a good line to draw. So like in this way is helping confirm the child's sense of security with the caretaker. They're in a safe environment, but they can still test those boundaries. Yeah, somewhere between killing and tickling. Good boundary. Killing must be one step worse than being tickled, I'm sure. But, you know, by telling these stories, we're, we're naming our dangers. We're mm. drawing those lines, those distinctions, the other that we always talk about. Mm-hmm. They're the other. The boogeymen are the other. Of course. Okay. Hopefully not your mother. Your mother is not the other, unless she's the other, other mother. Other mother, which is very scary indeed. Don't let them say the buttons on. But with this, we see the power of words. And in stories, words are so important. They make things happen. And this can almost be seen as like a secular magic. Right. Word magic, sigil magic, all of these things. Yeah, but you can really draw it back to you know, Judeo-Christian ideas mm-hmm. and like the name of God and in John. Uh, when, the word and the word was God and the word is God and all the tenses of the be verbs God. Yes, exactly. Yeah, got it. But our kind of collective idea of what a boogeyman is really became solidified in the 17th century. 
when people started writing it down. You wrote it down. Yeah. And you start getting fairy tales. That helps. Written fairy tales. Now, before this, this was one of the most practical oral traditions in every culture, really, is the cautionary oh, yeah. tale, mm-hmm. like the reason to come home before dark, the reason to listen to your parents. So while it has been around, literally, since time immemorial, this is when it becomes... Coded. Coded. Yeah. yeah. So how about a classic fairy tale boogeyman example? Let's go. Is this a Disney movie? No. Then are you sure it's a fairy tale? I think so. Okay. Because I would love to see a version, a Disney version of this tale. Let's do it. The Urkling by Goth. Gotcha? Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you have to sound angry when you say it. You're right. It's so not this, Russian. You're right. You're right. So this is a translation by Browling. Who rides there so late through the night, dark and drear? The father it is with his infant so dear. He holdeth the boy tightly clasped in his arm. He holdeth him safely, he keepeth him warm. My son, wherefore it seeks thou my, thy face thus to hide? Look, father, the Earl King is close by our side. Dost see not the Earl King with crown and with train? My son, tis the mist rising over the plain. O oh, come thou, dear infant, O oh, come thou with me, for many a game I will play there with thee. On my strand lovely flowers, their blossoms unfold. My mother shall grace thee with garments of gold. My father, my father, and dost thou not hear the words of the Earl King now breathes in mine ear? Be calm, dearest child, tis thy fancy deceives, tis the sad wind that sighs through the withering leaves. Wilt go then, dear infant, wilt go with me there? My daughters shall tend thee with sisterly care. My daughters by night their glad festival keep. They'll dance thee, they'll rock thee, they'll sing thee to sleep. My father, my father, and dost thou not see how the Earl King, his daughters, has brought here for me? My darling, my darling, I see it all right. Tis the aged gray willows deceiving thy sight. I love thee. I'm charmed by thy beauty, dear boy. If thou art unwilling, then force I'll employ. My father, my father, he seizes me fast, for sorely the Earl King has hurt me at last. The father now gallops with terror, half wild. He grasps in his arm the poor, shuddering child. He reaches his courtyard with toil and with dread. The child in his arms finds he motionless, dead. Hmm. Yeah, no. Not a Disney movie. I don't know. It's not far from things they have. Adapted. (laughs) But this is a classic kind of boogeyman tale of this creature coming at night. Oh my god, but how much more depth is there? Like, it's so interesting because of the dialogue between the father the child and the boogeyman yeah the earl king but it's you can see that father has obviously told the story to the child most likely in theory because he knows who he is right he recognized him. him and he's like you're being silly now you're being too afraid and i can't believe you yeah quit that quit that even though you believed me which is an interesting dynamic and then you have you have him telling him that it's just very practical things and also the things that the father points out are interesting because they're all aged and gray and older and less fanciful and you know they are much more concrete but there's a sense of of age about them i don't know it's the word that i keep thinking of is age it's all brittle and dry weathering trees and yeah. yeah and that is so far from the reality is it like the what's happening to the kid like the oh yeah like it's not what's happening he's truly hearing this boogeyman this creature come for him 
And so, you know, you're right. It it talks about how the child is not listened to by the father. And at this time, people were starting to think that children did have a closer contact with the other world. Mm, very interesting. Interesting note. This has been set to music many a time. Oh, good. Franz Cause... Schubert. Oh, I'd hear that. Oh, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. And also... Josh Ritter has a version. Cool. Which is fantastic. But it's actually inspired by a Danish tale, which was most likely mistranslated. Mm. So he was an elven king. And by moving it to Germany, it shifts it to this different realm. You know, you've mm. got the more fairy realm that this Danish elf king might have been a part of. Mm. And now you've got the deep, dark woods of Germany. Into the woods. Yeah, and so by the mistranslation and the resetting, it makes it even darker and mm. kind of more terrifying. It germifies, germanifies the monster. So there are a lot of versions of this tale, and it is still told as an urban legend. <laughs> so on Dartmoor and Devon, the story is told as this demon huntsman, the Dwar, uh-huh. who rides through the forest mm-hmm. with his black dog, who has flaming eyes. Oh, handy. One day he passes a man. And the man asks Dewar what he has in his sack. And so the Dewar throws down the sack to the man, laughs, and rides off. Now when the man gets home, he returns to his kitchen and opens the sack to prepare a tasty meal he's been gifted. But inside, he finds the body of his son. This is a a parental version of Don't Take Candy from Strangers. These are scary, but they're like, they're not condemning the children's behavior. They're condemning the parents. You'll see it kind of ride that line a lot. Throughout Europe and the rest of the world, you start seeing these child stealers, these cradle snatchers, as a huge part of their folklore. I mean, you could think of changelings. We did an episode all about changelings. It's the idea that fairies would come and take babies and replace them with changelings, bad versions of babies. But there are so many different versions and shapes and sizes and types of creatures that can function in this manner. You have goblins, you can have elves, you can have trolls in Northern Europe, giants in Scandinavia. And they're all that unfamiliar, that other. But they're also twisted and malformed. And they're, even if they kind of take the form of the human, they're this like ugly creature. It's repulsive. about, yeah. It's, fairies really are the outlier, the beautiful fairies, you know, like that would come and take babies or, you know, like. Yeah, but a lot of times they'd have like two faces, you know? Yeah. And then you can have your, your boo baggers. What's a boo bagger? So they carry their bags to stow the stolen babies away. Mmm. Boo baggers, bug a bear, boog a boo, you know, like yeah, they're all, all related. Yeah. yeah, they're all related. And this was such a great fear. You know, infant mortality was extremely high and kids were dying constantly. I mean, you just have to go back hundred so years before vaccines and the infant mortality rate was disturbingly high, you know? And before, you know, basic sanitation and washing. Oh, before that hand kind washing. of thing. Hand washing alone between births dropped infant mortality greatly. So back in the day in Italy, they had a hospital that was run by medical students and nuns. Mm-hmm. And they had a delivery ward for the nuns. And they had a delivery ward for the medical students. Mm -hmm. And the medical students would go and they'd like autopsy their body and they'd go like do surgery and then go deliver a baby. And they wouldn't wash their hands or Ah, clothes or anything. The nuns would wash their hands in holy water. Ah. And so one astute physician (laughs) 
figure it out. And that's kind of what the start, the very early start of sanitation and medicine. It's a miracle. It's all holy water's fault. You know what? We'll take it. But I mean, the other great fear was that this baby would be born into the world and it would die before it was baptized. And if that were to happen... Well, they would die with original sin on them. Eternal damnation. Or limbo? They didn't have limbo yet. Nah. Then they came up with limbo. And then they took it away again. <laughs> so at this time, the midwife was a very feared figure. It's an odd fear. Martin Luther was horrified by midwives. But they were seen as a particular threat to the baby because they were spinsters. No, no, yes. say it isn't so. Spinsters. And they did not adhere to the normal roles in society and existed outside of the family unit. So clearly there's something amiss. But they had access to this child at the moment of his birth where they could offer him to Satan. Oh my God, why would they do that? Because they're witches. Of course. And clearly that's why they're in the midwife game. They need their magic baby fat butter. (laughs) How else are they going to fly, Jacob? How else are they going to fly? Good question. But because this woman, suspicious, nefarious woman, had access to these unbaptized babies, much consternation was cast upon them. If they just had the Nimbus 3000, this would solve everything. Right? Harry Potter, dead baby fat, whatever. What's in the Nimbus 3000? Uh, clearly dead baby Yeah, fat. that's not said anywhere. <laughs> I'm sure it is. We're going to get a letter. By Owl. I hope so. But this is where we get the traditional appearance of the witch. This is where the witch becomes the old hag. This is where those things are collapsed because in the Malleus Maleficarum, the idea is that witches are identified by their overt sexuality, you know, and it's much more associated with a, I mean, because these are dirty old men who are doing the witch hunting, oversexed, beautiful young woman. Well, of course. But then we get this midwife fear and it really, Martin Luther's, like I said, horrified by these midwives. So in Germany, especially, the hag becomes the witch. And that is now Mm. like how that iconography is solidified there. Interesting. And so there was just this great fear of it. And I mean, there are even stories of Joan of Arc resurrecting a dead infant so that it could receive baptism. And then it lived a long, happy life or did it just die? No, no, it died. But it got to go into the embrace of God's loving arms and bosom, whatever. Scott have a bosom? Sure. Okay. Well, that was nice of her. Bad she couldn't, you know, keep the miracle going and, like, send him off to college. But whatever, Joan. Good for you. He probably would have just gone fight in the war. True. Or we burned at the stake for coming back to life. And you see in other cultures, um, traditions to try to help protect infants uh, at birth. I mean, we talked about Lilith a lot in our sleep paralysis episode. And she was a very frequent killer of babies. Right. Pretty much every baby that died in the first bajillion years of humanity was Lilith's fault. Definitely. And you have like in Egypt, they have this dwarf god, Bess. And there's a squat grinning figure. And you see it carved into all of these birth niches in Egypt excavations. And this can help to appease forces that might harm the mother and their children. And one thing that I remember you bringing up years ago. Mm-hmm. When my niece was being christened, I was her godmother, and I wanted to find this to give her. What do you want to give her? Um, I wanted to find a coral necklace, like a little pearl necklace with coral in it. Yeah, and so coral is a very ancient tradition for protecting newborn babies. And you can even see this in paintings of Madonna and child hanging Mm -hmm. around Jesus' neck. 
and it's actually a survival of a pre-Christian Middle Eastern magic against these boogeyman cradle snatchers. I was onto something there. So it was in the 16th and 17th century, they started kind of writing these things down, these stories. And you'd have broadsheets printed with the Kinderfresser, the child guzzler. Ah, that's worse than eater. <laughs> worse than eater. And the Kinderschicker, the child frightener. I would prefer to be frightened if I could. If I could not be guzzled, I would be happy. Well, you could see the child guzzler fountain in Bern in Switzerland. Yeah, that's weird. That's a weird one. And like we were discussing it earlier, and Jacob says, yeah, and no one really knows why. Why does it exist? No one knows theories, of course. And I said, you know, why in this case feels very necessary. Like this needs context. Well, describe it. It's a large, brightly colored statue, and there is a kind of giant man, and he has a child halfway in his mouth. And several big mouth. Yeah gaping and then he has other children crawling all over him and he's holding one by the leg and i've been told that there are musical bears there are musical bears that makes no sense that is no place for a musical bear but it is mind-boggling that this this thing still exists in the world and lacks oh this was erected to memorialize the cannibal who like there needs to be a story i can't process this (laughs) Someone needs to give me a concrete explanation, but really Google it. It's frightening. And so, you know, we do start to see these things, like I said, written down. And so one nursery rhyme is still here today Hmm. is the Sandman. Bring me a dream. Make him the cutest that I've ever seen. Close. (laughs) What is it? If that's not it, then what is it? Well, I mean, there's the modern nursery rhyme. There's so many versions of it. You know, there's not like one written down, but I found one I liked and I wanted to include it because it was like, I'm not sure where this came from. This is the one that was passed down to my mom. And when I asked her, she said her mom told it to her. So that's as like traditional of a folk rhyme as you can get. (laughs) So here comes the Sandman stepping so lightly, stealing along on the tips of his toes. He sprinkles the sand with his own little hands in the eyes of the sleeping children. Go to sleep, my baby. Close your sleepy eyes. The lady moon is watching from out the darkened skies. The little stars are peeping to see if you are sleeping. So go to sleep, my baby. Go to sleep. Good night. That's really sweet. I really like that. He wasn't always such a sweet character. Oh, well, figures. You wouldn't go to the sock hop and let someone pin you while that song was playing. <laughs> so in 1817, E.T.A. Hoffman, in his stories, has the old nurse explaining the Sandman tale. Mm. Oh, he's a wicked man who comes to little children when they won't go to bed and throws handfuls of sand in their eyes so they jump out of their beds all bloody. And then he puts them into a bag and takes them to the half moon as food for his little ones. And they sit in the nest and they have hooked beaks like owls and they pick naughty little boys and girls out with them. Good night. And sweet. Go to sleep. Exactly. I do have to say the Germans have a proud tradition of having things peck eyes out. I mean, that's pretty frightening to me. Right. I don't want that to happen. So one folklorist, Maria Tater, said, To me, the Sandman mirrors our ambivalence about children. On the one hand, we love and adore them, but we really love them best when they're asleep. This is true. This is true. true. This is true. This is true. If you don't have kids and you're thinking about it, this is true. And they sleep so much the first year, and you think it's hard because they don't sleep exactly when you want them to, and then they wake up forever. But as you can see with all the boogeymen we've talked about, they have 
some themes that run through it. Some common things. A lot of times they have sacks. Sacks? Sacks. Of phones. To carry children in. Bags. They have bags. And, you know, even I think of like Black Pete. Yes, I thought of Black Pete too. And he is the kind of boogeyman that's associated with Santa. That is the negative side of Santa. If you want to hear more about that, go way, way back. Get your way back machine <laughs> and go Santa find the Santa episode. It's like episode nine or something. Yeah. But another huge part of it is that they are cannibalistic. Yeah. They are going to take the children. The sack is just a way to carry them. And they are going to eat them. Because they are despicable characters. And what's worse than being eaten? There's no coming back from that, right? What's well, the ultimate taboo. Yeah. You know, we've talked about that as well. Like the, the taboo of cannibalism is one of the worst in so many cultures. Yes. And I think that's a good good call. Good call there, universal subconscious. When I think about children being eaten in scary fairy tales, I have to think about Little Red Riding Hood. That's a whole other metaphor. Okay, fine. We'll revisit that later. Well, like I thought of Grendel. Right. You know, I mean, that's definitely one of the oldest written monster tales mm-hmm. that we have. And he sneaks in, gets the Danes. While they're sleeping. While they're sleeping. Tears them apart. Chews them up. Spits them out. Swallows them. <laughs> and then leaves. No manners. None. He didn't even knock. She does. He knocks the door down. But, but no, this, so this idea of this cannibalistic monster coming in the night is, again, just this ancient tale. And we can go all the way back to the Greeks. Ah, uh, we always go back to the Greeks, don't we? It's fun. Now, this is a way, way back because it's beyond even the Olympians. It is. It's in the golden age. Of comics. Of titans. Of titans. So I suppose now would be a good time to talk about Kronos. Kronos. Or Saturn. Yeah, we'll go with Kronos for this tale. So Kronos was the king of the Titans. Mm-hmm. God of time, hence the name. Got it. Especially when time is viewed as a destructive, all-devouring force. Now, he was the son of Uranus, mm-hmm. Sky, and Gaia. Earth. Yes. Easy to see how those two got together. Right? It was a match made in heaven. Uh-huh. So now, whenever Uranus and Gaia would get together, they started having these creatures that they would give birth to. She would. She would. Cyclopses, giants, hydra, etc. Ew. A lot of, like, the most famous Greek monsters are born of their... Union. Yes. Okay. And so from Hesiod. And he used to hide them all away in a secret place of Gaia, so soon as each would born and would not suffer them to come up into the light. And Uranus rejoiced in his evil doing. But vast Gaia groaned within, being straightened, and she made the element of gray flint, and shaped a great sickle, and told her plan to her dear sons. And she spoke, cheering them, while she was vexed in her dear heart. My children, gotten of a sinful father, if you will obey me, we should punish the vile outrage of your father. For he first thought of doing shameful things. I think I've heard other people say that. (laughs) So she said, but fear seized them all, and none of them uttered a word. But great Kronos, the wily, took courage and answered his dear mother, Mother, I will undertake to do this deed. For I reverence not our father of evil name, for he first thought of doing shameful things. So Gaia is excited, gives him the flint sickle, and hides him in a bush. Like a literal bush? Yeah. Okay. 
So at the instigation of his mother, Kronos emerges and castrates his father. So Kronos goes on to be leader of the gods. Yeah, I think you earned that right. And he begins to have children with Rhea. Or Hesiod says, but Rhea was subject in love to Kronos and bare splendid children. Hestia, Demeter, gold-shoed Hera, strong Hades, the loud crashing earth shaker. Poseidon. And wise Zeus. Wise? Yeah. Okay. Look, you can make some poor decisions and cows and etc. Yep. Going with it. I'm on board. Wise Zeus. He gets out of it. <laughs> so Kronos had been warned by Uranus and Gaia that his children would overthrow him. And so every time Rhea had a child, he immediately gobbled it up. He loved them so. Oh. So Rhea was onto his game. And whenever Zeus was born, gave him a large stone to swallow. Gave Cronus. Yes. A large stone instead of Zeus. Yes. And hid Zeus on Crete. Cool. Good plan. So Zeus grew up and he was able to force Cronus to disgorge his swallowed offspring and led the Olympians in a 10-year war against the Titans, driving them in defeat into the pit of Tartarus. So now we have the Titans in the, the pit again. Titans are in the pit. Monsters are free. and Wait, monsters? Well, you can call them monsters. Cyclopses, etc. So Zeus has now defeated Cronus. Yes. So this is interesting. There's some weird sexual inversion going on in these stories. There really is. Like, she draws a sickle out of her body. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. And then, It's a little phallic yeah, for yeah. Mother Earth. Well, and then Kronos castrates Uranus. Right. And actually, in the castration, he creates, from the blood that drips down, nymphs, furies, and from his genitals that are thrown into the sea. As you would do with genitals. Yeah. Aphrodite is born. What? Right? I did not know this. And I know my Greek mythology. I did not know she was leftover. Man parts. Man parts. <laughs> of course she is. And she's the right? ultimate feminine? Of course she is. <laughs> Greeks, you Greeks. Oh my God. And you're Romans. so progressive. <laughs> well, they stole it. You're so progressive. But you do also, with Kronos, get this kind of surrogate motherhood. Right. And in bearing his children, he is forced to confront his downfall, which is a great commentary. (laughs) And then even if you think further on, Zeus. Right. Birds Athena. Right. From a gaping wound in his head. I'm pretty sure the, the head womb comparison is interesting. And I want to think about that more. Well, I think just gaping wound, you got to go back to our slit mouth woman. Yeah. You know? And there's definitely this like birthing analogy. It's interesting because you can look at the women in these Greco-Roman tales. And they're not exactly sweet. No. They're doing some pretty awful things too. Everybody's awful. They're all awful. Equal awful opportunities Mm -hmm. everywhere. But they aren't cannibalistic. They can be like infanticidal. But it's not in the same way. No, there's much more anxiety about being replaced on the male side, almost. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's anxiety about paternity. Mm. I mean, back then, you, you never knew right. <laughs> if it was yours or not. Without a doubt, in this way, you know Athena is the progeny of Zeus. 
you know that the Olympians are the progeny of Kronos, the leader of the Titans. Right, and in this case, it's not only a question of paternity, it's a question of divinity. No, I agree. Divinity for sure, and authority. Yeah, true, true, true. And one interesting element is that like in Norse mythology, you get this kind of opposite birthing trend with Hel, mm-hmm. Loki's daughter, right. goddess of death, underworld, etc. And she actually has this insatiable mouth and uh, is constantly swallowing the souls of the dead. So that's interesting because it's like a cycle. Like that's literally a cycle. Like it's all being, it's coming out of and being ingested by female bodies. Oh yeah, you're right. That's really cool. But let's look back at the, the Greeks for just a second. Also want to point out that in Norse mythology, the idea of being able to swallow things whole is a very divine characteristic eating and drinking lots of that is considered like the mark of a tough guy. Yeah. So anyway, but let's look back at the Greeks. Let's go back just for a second because I want to talk about like bare bones, what, which each generation is trying to prevent. They are staving off mortality. Yeah. They're staving off being overthrown because they're immortal. It's not time. It's the next generation, right? You're not worried about death. You're worried about being deposed. Right, and that's what happens again and again. Like Even Plato points it out, he's like, men believe that Zeus put his father, Kronos, in bonds because he wickedly devoured his children, and he in turn had mutilated his father for similar reasons. So even like at the time, they were like, this is crazy. These people need an analyst, I swear to God, honestly. Oh, we'll get there in a second. But no, you're right, you know, this is obviously some anxiety about being deposed, and Interestingly, in traditional zodiac imagery, you know, like on calendars or astrological treaties, Kronos represents time. He's holding an hourglass and he's holding a scythe. Eh. And he ha- he hung on to that, did he? It worked. You never know who needs to be castrated. And he rides in his chariot around the wheel of the heavens. And sometimes he is shown devouring his children, who are allegorized as ours. This unrelenting passage of time. Ugh, that's an intense metaphor, Greeks. That is an intense metaphor. Oh, that, that's alchemy. It's alchemist. Medieval, oh. medieval guys. They're taking it like one step further, as they are wont to do. And you know who was a big fan of this story? Freud. 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 We haven't talked about him in a long time. No, but I have Freud in mind today, too. I have a little Freud. I keep him in my pocket, and he whispers to me when I'm doing things that betray my underlying neuroses. Oh, good. My little Freud. So just a little Freud. And you know why he's there? Schadenfreude. God, no. Is that his real name? Schaden. So Freud said, Kronos devours his children, just as the wild boar devours the sow's litter, while Zeus emasculates his father and made himself ruler in his place. The obscure information which is brought to us by myth and legend come from the primeval age of human society gives an unpleasing picture of the father's despotic power and of the ruthlessness with which he made use of it. First of all, notice anything wrong with that? Yes, I do. I don't mean to correct Freud, but Zeus did not emasculate his father. Right, he flipped the stories. (laughs) And he did write later about how he did that, and it's, you know, part of the subconscious mind or whatever. (laughs) Seems I have some splaining to do. But he did use it. As an example of, you know, he loved to use the Greek myths for castration, anxiety, and also fear of the father. Yeah, he had some issues. He needed to see an analyst. So fun. But it's interesting because the imagery of Saturn 
or Kronos eating his children that we think of now is new in relation to how old the story is. It really comes about in the Middle Ages, in the 15th century, when you start to see these depictions of him like ferociously devouring children. I didn't think that was until later. Like in a lot of the earlier paintings, he is reaching for them and looking at them menacingly and we infer yeah sometimes he's holding him up like by the ankle like towards his mouth and then yet it devolves as things are wont to do or it struck me when i was looking at one of the depictions of him holding the child up by the ankle that there's something that very reminiscent of achilles why is that well like achilles is dipped in whatever he's dipped in to make him invincible but they, she holds, Super soldier serum. His street name was Steve Rogers, but his mom called him Achilles and he got really embarrassed by it. But she holds him by the ankle, dips him in, and eventually the Achilles heel, the Achilles tendon, is struck. And this leads to his downfall because she missed a spot. And so I think holding a child by the ankle upside down is the international, ever-present, always-there symbol of imperfect parenting. Well, there's some other symbols in there, too. You have Solomon. That's always how he's depicted with the baby. That he's going to cut in half? Yes. But he doesn't. Um, but it's also how King Herod was depicted. Hmm. Often holding the child or like a soldier holding the child before the slaughter of the innocents. So that's a very powerful symbol. Especially at this time in art that was a really popular topic because it was super anti-Semitic <laughs> and people loved it. And that's another episode that I keep promising we're going to do. One day. One day. It's hard to do a big anti-Semitic episode right now. It's just really hard. But the most classic, classic depiction of Saturn devouring his children is by Goya. Goya. It's nightmare fuel. Do I get to talk about Goya now? I guess. For as long as I want to? No. Goya primarily lived in Madrid. He was born in 1746 and died in exile in Bordeaux, France in 1828. He suffered a serious illness in the 1790s, which left him deaf. And he took a hiatus from painting commissions during that time. And he decided to take on some new, darker subject matter. Oh boy, did he. One of Goya's favorite subjects to use as a vehicle for exploring fantasy and invention as well as satire was witchcraft. Oh fun, the old hags. Yeah, well, not always. He had a very nuanced view of the monstrous. I took a lot of information from the book Goya and the Grotesque, a study of themes of witchcraft and monstrous bodies by Christy Durkin. And it's a really thorough examination of these elements and themes within Goya's body of work. While we're citing things. <laughs> Ridden Oko the Bogeyman by Marina Warner. Excellent if you need more and more, more, more information on this stuff. Pause, go read them. You back? Cool. You're smarter. Wow, that took a few weeks. Now, Goya was following a larger trend here. Witchcraft was a very popular subject for private commissions during this time. Many artists who were active during the Spanish Enlightenment experimented with the theme of witchcraft. Now, Goya did so in a sharply satirical way. His purpose was to critique the superstitions of witchcraft as lies promoted by corrupt institutions like the Catholic Inquisition. He wanted to expose hypocrisy, but also to ridicule those who believed the lies. No one questions the Spanish Inquisition. Poor K. 
Goya also used grotesque bodies in the male form, in which the distorted features were mostly emphasized in the head or face. Now, an art scholar, Holtz, said that the images of the witch in the Renaissance and Middle Ages were used to emphasize deviant acts, especially those of women. And a lot of times these took on a burlesque tone for men's amusement. Those saucy witches. Mm, Yes. It's like Halloween. Pride parade for straight people, as Dan Savage says. Now, this was a kind of early humor or deviation from high art or religious painting. Weren't too many sexy witches in the in the churches? There were seven, and they were all covered up eventually. But Goya internalized this tradition, and he worked as an illustrator doing things almost like comics, in addition to his court paintings when he was working for the aristocracy in Madrid. He used the humorous elements, the kind of burlesque tone, the conversational nature of a lot of these paintings to sharpen his critiques of society. Goya's interest in the subject comes from a skeptical and satirical outlook on superstition, immersed in his broader agenda of exposing the follies of Spanish society and humanity as a whole, says our friend Holtz. Again, let's put Goya in historical context. Very important. Spanish Civil War. One of them. One of them. Yeah, there were lots. But things are not going so well. Spanish Inquisition, Spanish Civil War. He was originally from a rural village and saw a lot of the combat and the desecration of bodies and the atrocities of war firsthand. And he actually made a record of what he saw called Disasters of War, which he completed in 1810 through 1820. There are illustrations done in black and white originally, and each of them have a caption, which he's, he is a writer as well as an artist. Like they usually try to point out an irony or a wrong. Like one of his captions shows a body that's very badly mangled. Um, it's been impaled on a tree. And it says, this is worse. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, like it's a very poignant comment on what he's shown you. And there's another where the, the caption is tantamount to like, how brave victory over the dead and it's more mutilated bodies. He was a very dark guy. He's a very dark guy, but he lived in a very dark moment and he suffered a serious illness that left him deaf and even more isolated because no one was signing at this time. And that did not help the tone of his artwork. No, but look, before we get any further into Goya specifically, Let's talk about some of the terms that are associated with his art a little more broadly, just so we can establish some ground rules here. Woohoo, art time. Art time. This is your art history minute. So, we talked about him doing disasters of war. They're awful. They're gut-wrenching, even after having seen Saving Private Ryan. And he is experimenting there with the grotesque. But so that's a really old term. It is a very old term. And Goya there is not necessarily seeking to do that he's merely recording what he's seen as truthfully as he can probably with some emphasis on making it horrible but for a very specific purpose he is not adopting it to emphasize anything in his artwork he is recording a grotesque thing but the term grotesque did not originally mean some twisted awful thing no it didn't it was it was originally used to describe a specific style of artwork Now, it is used as a substitute for the word gargoyle in some quarters, but it originated to describe the underground portions of Nero's Domus Aurea. The grotto, as one might say. Yes, the grotto, the cave, the grotesque. 
As Vasari puts it, in describing the walls of the Domus Aurea, the walls were everywhere populated with the licentious and the ridiculous. Oddities formed according to no rule but the fantasy of the artist. Every absurdity of monster, a heavy weight attached to the finest thread, a horse with legs of leaves, a man with crane's legs, cavorting among the bumblebees' birds, leaves, and branches. And these were discovered in the buried rooms. And so this term originally was about these fantastical creatures. And as time went on, it changed. But you have people like Michelangelo writing about the grotesque. Mm -hmm. But he is talking about how fantastic it is that artists are able to work with this kind of medium. Right, it's, it's about imagination. And they can kind of express their artistic creativity. And a true artist can, can work in this fashion and do something fantastical. And it changes over time. And those ideas of the grotesque change in the Middle Ages, where these monsters and these creatures that were used in Greek times become demonized. And that's when you get these kind of depictions of demons and things like that, that are very similar to Greek creatures. But there would be another change around this time when a scientific eye, an analytical eye, is put to new strange creatures and naturalist works, as in people who are going out and examining finches or what have you, are sending back these detailed almost renderings, more like architectural renderings of their newly discovered animals. Like okapes? Like okapes. And so you have the marrying of strange new animals with this kind of detailed art design that's coming in from all over the world. And it reignites the imagination and the need to display this art in the context of amusement, oddity, etc. So, you know, kind of gets its humor back. And that's where you see the wonder cabinets. Yes. It was, these were very popular fixtures. Grotesque artwork was very popular in the wonder cabinet genre. And these were cabinets where little curios would be put. We talk about it on our Dime Museum episode. But, you know, small portraits, especially miniatures, portraits, paintings, otherwise, would be included. And a lot of times they would be of animals, monsters, or in some cases superstitious scenes yeah right next to naturalist objects like Mm -hmm. shells or bones or the monstrous became satirical through this kind of juxtaposition the superstitious the monstrous that we were talking about kind of from the middle ages evolved into being like look how silly this is compared to science and so it became comical and humorous and it was seen as like sporting and the new Forms that the grotesque took on sort of reflected the convergence of superstition and elite intellectualism. And it was the intellectuals kind of saying, how silly. And so it became even more about distortion. Think Quasimodo. This is that same moment where you have a character whose ugliness is highlighted in order to show the ugliness of the people around him. It becomes very symbolic. Yes. But it also takes on... Like I said, just that that twisted kind of nature. What we think of as what grotesque means now. This is when it's modernized. This is that moment. Goya can be considered a very early adopter of this and a very articulate driver of this vehicle. That's a badly mixed metaphor, but you understand what I'm saying. Like He is a master 
of this form. He highlighted grotesque aspects of the witchcraft theme by enhancing the deformed physical features of his characters. And he took this approach with both male and female characters, which was unusual. A lot of times in satirical work, women were made ugly because that was ironic, because they're supposed to be pretty, you see. Misogyny was very key to this form functioning. Uh, of course, of course, yeah, definitely. But Goya didn't do that. He was very into just making everybody terrible. Bad men, bad women. And overall, the grotesque, in artistic or aesthetic terms, is an aberration from the ideal, which exaggerates the ugliness or misshapenness of the subject matter and deviates from the norm. And that is our understanding of the term today. This is the moment when that is becoming what it actually means. Right. When that's, this is becoming true. Deviations from the norm, when they're pronounced correctly, can elicit very strong reactions from a viewer. And those can range from ridicule and laughter to fear and disgust. The grotesque is about that which violates some aspect of religious, moral, social, or the natural world that we've constructed. Right, like it's a mocking of God's divine works. Right, and Freud said that. So Freud wrote about things that are fused together that should be kept apart. And these fusions generate a reaction that when these elements pierce into the consciousness, we become aware of that distinct feeling of repulsion. So in this way, the grotesque is almost a liminal space. It is the thing between the two things. It's the combination of opposites. It's irony personified or depicted literally. And it's this uncomfortable space where expectation and reality coexist and overlap and almost directly contradict one another in a very uncomfortable way. There's this very tangible feeling of a disturbance in the force, a disturbance in the gestalt principle, like in the... Something's not right. And it highlights the transgressive nature of the subject. So by putting a grotesque appearance on one character, you highlight that character and their wrongdoing and their perceived failings. Now, in addition to the grotesque elements of his work, much of Goya's painting for patrons that deals with the subjects of witches or the supernatural, is described as carnivalesque. That sounds fun. Right? So at the same point in history, artists were experimenting with a carnivalesque. And I like to think of the carnivalesque as the fun, flamboyant cousin to the pastoral scene. Okay, well, like, what's an example? Okay, well, of pastoral or? No, that's just like pretty pictures. Think Flemish art for pastoral. Cows. Lots of cows. Or in America, great scenes of... Our burgeoning nation. Yeah, the room you walk by when you're in the museum. When you walk in and go, pretty. And go to the next room, that one. Like a rainbow and a waterfall. Cool. Next. That took them 80 years to paint. That's pretty. But carnivalesque would be depictions of like feast scenes or kind of low culture, high energy. So not everyday life, special occasions. Things that are set aside from the norm. Like a carnival. Like a carnival. And they were kind of celebrations of excess. They showed an interaction between unlikely characters because you can run into anyone when you're out at the carnival. Also showed eccentric behaviors and misalliances that are very associated with carnivals. Like literally, like men dressing up like women. You know, the things that we talked about on like our um, Mardi Gras episode. Yeah, costuming. Old people acting young, clergy acting devilish, these ironic juxtapositions where things are forced together that are not supposed to be together. And a lot of the themes of the carnivalesque paintings are sacrilegious. 
where deviant behavior is allowed, overlooked, because it's a carnival. It's not punished. So it's a place where you can get away with being bad. Like how the fool is the king. Mm, yes. But also you can drink too much and not be executed. Oh, good. You know, things like that. Now, Goya, like I said, did take up the theme of witches, and he definitely did some gross old hags. But he also worked with a male figure a lot and worked with male characters a lot. And his most prevalent male character at this time is the fool. And this is a play on the jester, that kind of fool. And it's probably what the Joker looked like if he had been hanging out with Goya during the Spanish Civil War. I would rather not think of that. That's terrifying. Google it. Google it. And the jester is sort of this embodiment of human folly. So he comes up a lot in Goya's satirical paintings. Now, women were were depicted as witches and hags, but it kind of focused on the irrelevance of superstition in the new age of enlightenment. They were portrayed as outdated, old, silly, a lot of donkeys in the paintings with the hags. Okay. Well, donkeys are a symbol of ignorance. Oh, okay. So like by plopping a donkey on there, you know, like this is ridiculous. Yes. There was a lot of commentary on the men who operated within the institutions that perpetuated these very outdated, superstitious, corrupt beliefs. Is that like priests and things like that? Mm Mm-hmm. Mockeries of priest, anti-priest. He must have been really popular in Spain. Yeah, he was was exiled to Bordeaux, which is categorically not in Spain. At least he got wine out of the deal. Maybe. Maybe he did. But Goya believed that art should be socially useful, and he used the grotesque elements of art in order to create obvious satire. And he could cast a social or political evil as a literal monster within his work. He also, in addition to the Disasters of War series, completed a series called The Caprichos. And loosely translated, this means like whimsy or fantasy. I want to think this is going to be fun, but I just have a feeling it's not. (laughs) It's a little fun. It's it's more fun than the disasters for. Fine. Low bar, first of all. And it's usually, it can be associated also with waywardness. The word caprichos. The stereotypes of witchcraft became less credible and began to be used for as teaching tools for the upbringing of children. I brought it back around. See, we're back to children. I promise. A parent could inform a daughter that if she displayed a certain behavior... She could be accused of witchcraft and have to suffer the consequences brought on by the Inquisition. Or if a child was defiant, a parent might threaten them by saying that they would be abducted by a witch or given to the hands of the devil as a sacrifice. Koya would later ridicule these types of superstitious parenting tactics in his satirical print series. So he was not a fan of the boogeyman. No, he was like, this is stupid. Just tell them not to do it. Which, he was very disappointed in the way his son turned out, so maybe he was wrong. Maybe he should have used the boogeyman. No, he highlighted the more destructive elements of these old wives' tales in his paintings by focusing on fears of cannibalism. He shows witches abducting a child in one of his etchings that reads, No doubt they were a great catch of children the previous night. The banquet, which they are now preparing, will be a rich one. Bon appetit. Oh no. (laughs) You a little dark sense of humor there, huh? I love this guy. And he does depict a variety of ages of witches. And I like to think that the old hag became such a prevalent image because of midwives. And that's interesting. But I think also it probably has to do with 
the fact that they had wrinkles and wrinkles are really fun to paint. I mean, it's like why there's an orange in every painting. It's all the orange's fault. Yes. Goya believed that it was very infantile to believe in witches. And so he highlights that with the relationship between monsters and children in his work. Now, there's an early witch's Sabbath, which is not from the black paintings. It's a different one. We'll get to the black paintings, hold your horses. But this is an earlier version that was painted as a like a small miniature for a, a vendor cabinet. And it's the witch's Sabbath. And the composition consists of a group of witches sitting in a circle around Satan, who takes the form of a huge billy goat. Black Philip. Yep. They have adorned his horns with a garland wreath. And he is visibly pleased because of all the infants and children the witches have brought to sacrifice to him. They're feeding the goat babies. Yes, they are. He's also sitting crisscross applesauce, which is just terrifying in and of itself. Interesting. Yeah. Looking from left to right, the viewer of this work begins to pick out the tiny figures of the children from a partially decayed corpse sprawled on the ground to a living child's legs poking out from a witch's shawl, an emaciated child being held up by an old hag and a plump baby cradled by a pretty young witch. It's so disturbing. Yes. This is, you know, an earlier painting. But in the Caprichos, he does go back, of course, to this because this is his catalog of society's vices. Including witches. In Goya's Grotesque by Michael Erbst, he says, Goya's use of the grotesque promotes the cause of reason, a use of a mode otherwise subordinate or dissonant with leading mimetic trends of Goya's day, which resulted in Goya becoming grotesque himself, a hybrid caught in the liminal, corrupted interval between reason and unreason. And this brings us to that exact moment. The moment we're here, you can say he goes mad. The black paintings. I told you we'd get there. The I black told paintings. you we'd get there. This is the interesting, I feel, one of the most interesting like art stories. Which is why like he an, let me tell it. Yeah, it's just like an <laughs> artist going just mad. So, in 1819, Goya was struck by another severe illness, not long after he moved into the Quinta. It was all but written off for dead before receiving treatment from a doctor, Eugenio Garcia Arieta who saved his life. And you can actually see his painting. It's a self-portrait, but it also includes a portrait of Dr. Arrieta in the work self-portrait with Dr. Arrieta. But he looks like he is dead. It's he looks a like death. very fascinating image. And the doctor's there offering him water or something to drink, probably whiskey. But deaf, lonely, and having just survived another near-fatal illness, Goya made a dramatic change in his artistic style. In his isolation inside the walls of the Quinta, he began to apply paint to the walls in a series of private murals, significantly darker in color and subject matter than his previous works. Begun at some point in 1820, after recuperating from his sickness, they became the aptly named Pinturas Negras, or Black Paintings. Now, the Quinta was actually called the House of the Deaf Man before Deaf Goya moved into it. Another deaf man had lived there previously. Well, that's weird. I know. Apropos. I know. I love it. Can't so believe it. So he just like covered the walls with black paint to start. And he painted huge murals all over the walls of his home where he was exiled, living quietly, trying to stay living. <laughs> and there are some interesting ones. There's another, which is Sabbath, which is dark and terrifying. There is two old men eating soup, which is dark and terrifying. As dark and terrifying as that can be. There is a dog paddling in quicksand. There's one called like the reading, seancey looking thing. 
none of them are happy. None of them. And they were kept secret after his death because his family feared that they would be destroyed if they were acknowledged publicly. Now, among the other treasures offered to us by the black paintings is Goya's Saturn. Devouring his children. And if you were going to paint Saturn devouring his children on the wall in your home, which, which wall would you choose? None of them. The dining room. Of course, no. Goya, you're ridiculous. Like, who does this? Like, you're sitting there eating, staring at this thing? You do the soup painting in there. I think it was in there, too. <laughs> okay. He was on theme. He was on message. Goya embraces the darkest moment in the character's saga. Here is where we see the madness of a man who was once all-powerful, desperately trying to stave off his imminent demise. And it's this figure that looks almost animal. He's ogre-like. Uh, like, to me, he looks like a dog that has a bone he doesn't want to be taken. Like, he doesn't want he you does to take not away. look like a god. He barely looks human. And he is the epitome of grotesque. He is. You know, he's a solid black background. No landscape, really, to speak of. As they all pretty much are. Some more than others. A fantastic vision is probably the biggest departure from that trend. But, but Saturn is very minimal. It's stark black background, very little landscape, very light figure by comparison, high contrast, um, light skin, gray beard, gray hair, very wide eyes. And they look directly past the viewer. They are forward-facing, but absolutely no way to make them look at you. He is holding up a torso um, section of a child, which is in parts, which is obviously just partial. And he's gripping it so tightly that there's actually blood coming out of the body and dripping from his hands. It is this desperate, crazy moment that you see like it is it's not glorious it's not calculating it's not powerful it's this it is desperate it's frightening it's sad it is like in some weird way like with how the eyes are set the ogreous animal-like saturn doesn't it's almost like pitiable like he does not look like a frightening monster other than of course he's eating children (laughs) And the body does look more like an adolescent, which interests me as well. Like, that choice interests me. But I can't think of that image apart from Goya. Like, I link that to him biographically. Oh, especially when you look at the state he was in. He was shut away in his home, painting on his walls. And think of the things he'd seen in his lifetime. Think of the power that he'd had and the in the circle of influence that he once enjoyed. Now he's, like, exiled from his home. He's lost his hearing. He's suffered another fatal illness. He's most likely he's lost his mind. I would say that he probably like had meningitis. Lead poisoning is another thing that people think sometimes. Nah. Really? Why would he lose his hearing? It would be like a massive dose of lead. Have you seen Spain in this moment in time? I'm sure there was lots of lead lying around. But when we look at this version of Saturn, we know that he's failing. We know that he is fighting the inevitable. It does not seem that he will emerge from this dark plot victorious. His demise is imminent. This is one of the most interesting confrontations of mortality I think I've ever seen. Despite your best efforts, no matter what you do, privately, your darkest fears, your fears that 
it's all meaningless, that you're not going to last, that you're not going to matter, that the world will forget you, that you will fail in your quest for immortality. I see all of that in this hideous figure. I see the struggle. It's interesting because this painting really takes it away from that birthing imagery. You know, the birthing imagery that we talked about, he's not going to be able to birth these children that he is tearing apart. That's not going to happen. Oh, you mean they cannot reemerge whole? I would not see how one could. Magic. St. <laughs> Nicholas sure. comes and puts them back together again. You're right. It's interesting because you do start to see the loss of that kind of birthing imagery in Christianity, especially related to, you know, boogeyman and like the devouring of children. You start to see the ultimate boogeyman that you mentioned earlier. Oh, the devil. Satan. The devil. Coming about. Get thee behind me, Satan. Because you can see Satan's torments. Mm. As this kind of continual like rebirth and death process is a constant cycle. So we don't need to be consumed by anything else. We don't need the middleman. We're cutting out the middleman in the eternal cycle of torture and damnation. Yes. So, oh my God, the boogeyman was the middleman. Does that make sense? Like that's, that was the place he held. I just, that's interesting. Yeah. And you know, in Judeo Christian tradition, of course you had these unholy terrors performed by demons you know, written about in like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, such as they assume unholy terrors of Moloch, the Canaanite idol to whom babies were sacrificed and burnt offerings, which were forbidden by Mosaic law. So it's moved outside of the sphere of the believer It is put on another system of belief. I say the Canaanites, like they were sacrificing their kids and yep. we know better. Yeah. So it, it externalizes a, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But it's also saying the devil's doing those things. And you're so lucky, so, so lucky that you don't have to be sacrificed. That's right. This is the beginning of, of, of the guilting. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you can go and look and see how Dante depicts the devil to get a really good idea of how it was envisioned at the time when he was writing. And so he's in the lowest circle of hell. The devil is. Yes, but Dante is there as well. Right. With his friendly guide, Virgil. This is fanfic, by the way. I love Dante's Inferno. So the beast is frozen mid-breast. So he's frozen away from all light, warmth that God provides. Oh, he's frozen up to that point. Yes. And to quote, with six eyes, he was weeping and over three chins dripped tears and bloody foam. In each mouth, he crushed a sinner with his teeth. As with a heckle, and thus he kept three of them in pain. To him in front, the biting was nothing, to the clawing, for sometimes the back was left all stripped of a skin. And so often these three sinners that the devil is constantly consuming as this demon creature are depicted as Judas and Cassius and Brutus. Mm. But you see this, like the term, like the gnashing of teeth is not necessarily the sinners, but also the devil himself. Constantly consuming and the gnashing of teeth. Okay, so when I hear that phrase, I don't think of the devil. I think of where the wild things are. No, I do too. You know, they roll. I mean, I can think of when I read it to the kids. I'm like, they, they roll, roll their, their terrible, terrible eyes, eyes. show their terrible claws, and gnash their terrible teeth. Yes, and Maurice Sendak and Where the Wild Things Are is a classic child story 
So in this book, Maurice Sendak has just this interesting take on the boogeyman. It's a classic story where the child is... Max, call him by his name. Max is dressed as an animal. He's a wolf. And he's acting like one. And so he's punished, sent off to bed with no supper. Which my kid would personally be quite pleased if he didn't have to eat supper. Well, he goes off to live with the boogies. He goes off to live with the animals. The wild things. Yes. And he, in this story, is playing the boogeyman. This plays off that other idea of the boogeyman where the child can be the evil creature. And True, it does. It goes back to Kukoi. And as Marina Warner said, Sindak's pared-down narrative pulses beside our, our under the, his excessive, hyperbolic, crowded, and gargantuan cartoon creations to create a dream world of gratification and power and ultimately consolation and safety. Because whenever he is kind of threatened by the creatures whenever he says he's going to leave and what do they say oh no please don't go we'll eat you up we love you so right and maurice sendak came up with the idea for this story because his relatives would always say that to him aren't you so cute i just want to eat you up and he always thought that was such a terrifying image yeah my mom says that oh i could just eat you up but in this story it also tells the rest of the boogeyman story you know children are trying to defy the fear and trying to internalize it and in that way fend off that fear of the boogeyman so wait i want to do a deep analysis real quick like max offends crosses a line his parents say you've crossed a line we are angry with you and so through going to the dream world where the wild things are where he sails in and out of weeks and across the whole year in going to that place he is exploring that boundary he's literally exploring the boundary between parental acceptance and defiance well he becomes the king of the wild things in like in my spatial layout of the story that i'm putting together in my own head right now i see like parental rejection Mm -hmm. on one side and i see parental approval on the other side and i see the strip in the middle that is the literal place where the wild things are and And that's where kids live yeah and he goes to (laughs) explore it he goes to master it yes and he goes and interacts with the wild things mm-hmm. realizes they're not that great it's not the best he misses home and he decides to leave and go back home he avoids the threat and he realizes but he also he also faces the threat i don't think there's really a threat until he's leaving i mean i think you can see it as a threat it's monsters they're creatures they're they're quite terrifying they're adorable you're adorable. I'm terrifying. But then, after that, he comes home, and he finds his supper waiting for him, and it's still hot. And I think that like that moment sort of represents the idea that even if you transgress the boundary between approval and rejection, ultimately, the threat is always null, because parents will always love and accept their children. Now, that is an important part of it, but... I think it has more to do with like facing the fear, you know, it's like he's able to kind of really face it. And it's all a dream. It's a dream sequence, you know, because it's not food wouldn't still be hot if he went in and out of weeks and through a year. Well, he (laughs) went back. He turned time backward. And so for ages, we have as children been faced with these stories, these stories of boogeyman or bogeyman or booger bears, which is my favorite booger bears. Uh-huh. That's my, main, my new angry anonymous comment name. 
And by incorporating them into our self and facing that fear, we are able to overcome it. And we're also, like you said, with the parents, you know, able to realize that we have this safe home. Right. And so the idea of what a boogeyman is has really changed over the years. You know, you can look at those paternal anxieties and fears with Kronos and with Zeus. And then you can see the infant mortality fears or the fears of having a child possibly with disabilities with like changelings Mm -hmm. or the fears of eternal damnation along with the high infant mortality rate. But as we know, that's changed. Right. We wash our hands now. Yes. Not even in holy water. That's made a difference. And so like, as you can see, as the idea of the grotesque changes with Goya, it's evolved further into our modern kind of monsters. And you can look at different fears that we have and you can see what our modern day boogeymen are. Now, now instead of being afraid that our children are going to die of polio, then we now might have fear of our own parenting anxieties. You know, are we going to screw this up? I think. Did we miss a spot? Yeah. A perfect example is Babadook. Oh my God. Babadook is amazing. It's such a good movie. I never watch movies. I watched that one. Thoroughly enjoy it. Would recommend. Scary as hell. But then you also see that grotesque is still around. You have that evolution from Goya into our modern day monsters. And I, mean, I think the perfect example of the grotesque in modern movies is like the xenomorphs and alien. Or Freddy Krueger, man. Oh, yeah. Definitely. That's a great example, actually. But Goya said, I'll have you know... I'm not afraid of witches and spirits and phantoms and boastful giants, rogues, knaves, etc. Nor do I fear any kind of being except human ones. And now that's become our greatest fear. Our greatest fear now is of other people, which if it's right or not, you know, we've talked so much about the other and you know how we kind of can overdramatize the kind of numbers <laughs> and the stats, still be afraid of other people more, but it's still the greatest fear that we have today. The most relevant one, yeah. maybe, in modern culture. Yeah, is that it may not be a twisted, human, grotesque creature that is coming for us, at least not externally. That this grotesque nature is internal. That they're ugly on the inside and they're coming for your children. That's our greatest fear. And it's something we're faced with very often. So I found a real-life boogeyman. Really? And not Albert Fish, because that's a story for another day. It's a good one. This is a lesser-known fiend, and he was known as the Beast of Jersey. Wait, we've done the Jersey Devil. Different. Different, Worse. Different. Different Jersey? Oh, okay. First of all. Also, different devil. Old Jersey. Old Jersey, not New Jersey. The Beast of New Jersey is Chris Christie. But this man's name was Edward Paisnell. And I'm going to read a little article for you about Edward Paisnell. This is from Reuters News Service, printed in the Sydney Morning Herald on December the 1st, 1971. Jersey, Channel Islands, Tuesday. A modern-day bluebeard has practiced black magic and was convicted yesterday of sex crimes that had brought 11 years of terror to the island. Paisnell was a lonely, sinister figure. Even his wife lived apart from him, although they dwelt in the same rambling house. The court was told how, on a full moon, Paisnell used to go out seeking victims, 
boys as well as girls, and he led them from their beds with a rope tethered around their neck. Some of the victims gave evidence years after the actual offense. An air hostess, now 36, told how she was raped 11 years ago and had been terrified since and slept with a loaded gun under her pillow. Police said Paisnell, a builder, had constructed a shrine to the devil inside a large barn. Heavy red curtains hid the altar from passers-by. Beneath them were magic symbols, including a large knife hanging point down to a brown earthenware dish and a glass toad. As a builder, Paisnell knew how to break into houses and had intimate knowledge of the footpaths and lanes. For years, he led a double life. During the day, he seemed to lead a blameless life. He and his wife, Joan, took in orphan children at their home in Gouraville. After each attack, he was one of the first to attack this brute in the local public house. At night, Jekyll became Hyde. He would worship at his black magic shrine and then set off to seek his next victim. On July 10th this year, he, his luck ran out. Early that day, he stole a car in preparation for an attack that evening. He was equipped with his usual terrifying garb, his coat with studded, inch-long nails around the lapels and shoulders and around his wrist. He wore nail-studded bracelets. In his pocket was a woman's black wig, and in the lining of his coat, a hideous rubber mask. His downfall that night was a murder he did not commit. Earlier in the day, a young woman had been found dead. The police set up roadblocks all over the island. Road junctions were watched. At a set of traffic lights, Paisnell was forced to slow down while driving the stolen car. He saw groups of policemen, and he thought the hue and cry was on his account. He sped through the lights and was pursued by a police car down country lanes. After a struggle, he was arrested. Less than an hour later, Paisnell was taken in to Detective Inspector George Shuttler's tiny office on the second floor of the police headquarters in St. Helier. Inspector Shuttler said, The officer who brought him in told me the prisoner's name, and I said, Hello, Ted. I could not help myself. I just knew the man, although we never had met. I had nightmares about him. I had dreamt about him. He looked exactly like the man I knew I wanted. It was in a tremendous relief to know that he'd been caught. For the past 11 years, Inspector Shuttler had given up weeks of his time and holidays in an effort to capture the attacker. The result of this case has many tongues wagging. Holy shit. So this guy put on a boogeyman costume, would go and steal children in the night from their beds and do terrible things. Oh, yes, yes. Let me read you the AP account. A father of three children... With a taste for orgies and grotesque masks, was found guilty Monday of a series of sex attacks on children for 10 years terrorized this vacation island in the English Channel. Jersey's royal court found Edward Paisnell, 46, guilty of all 13 charges involving boys and girls as young as nine between 1960 and last year. The jury took 45 minutes to reach its verdict. Paisnell will be sentenced by the island's full court Wednesday if psychiatric reports are ready before then. He pleaded innocent. Police say they found gear when they arrested Paisnell in a stolen car, and he claimed that he was on his way to a sex orgy, and he later denied responsibility for the attacks on the children. Medical witnesses told the court that scratch marks found on the children could have been caused by the nails on the costume. Prosecution also produced evidence that Paisnell practiced some sort of black magic in a room in his house. Now, his big defense when he was pulled over is that he was part of a cult, and this outfit was the uniform. Oh, okay. 
which is the worst defense ever. If you're like, no, no, I'm just in a sex cult. No worries. You're starting at a really bad spot when you're like, that's what I'm hoping you'll believe. But let me tell you about this costume. Tell me about it. So we've mentioned the nails. He was studded. He was studded. Lapels of his jacket and the shoulders had inch-long nails protruding, and he also wore bracelets, which had nails protruding outward on his wrist. So the full Hot Topic look going. But inch-long nails with sharp points. He wore a dark jacket with a turned-up collar. And this mask, it's misshapen. It doesn't align properly with human features. It's a little askew immediately evoking that distortion we talked about in grotesque art. It's this twisted human creature. It looks like a melted mannequin face. It's very Freddy Krueger. I mean, it is. And then he has this dark, curly women's wig that he puts on top of the thing. And then he wears a little cap on top of that. This is the most horrifying mask I can imagine. Genuinely. And so how long was he active for? 11 years. Holy shit. That we know of. And so would he just go in and get random people? There were a series of attacks committed on the island. And he would enter the homes of sleeping families. And evidence suggested that he watched the children or the women for extended periods of time before he ever took them. Um, there were footprints, like well-worn little footpads outside some of the windows that indicated that somebody had been coming back and forth. Oh, chills. It was like Coco. He's just sitting there watching the children, waiting for them to be bad. Uh, waiting to take them. The Beast of Jersey resurfaced in 2010 when an inquiry into the abuse that took place at children's homes was opened. Now, Jersey had some serious problems in the children's homes. We've talked about some of the like mother and baby homes and stuff, but apparently the wi- abuse was very widespread. We had similar problems in the United States. I'm not casting dispersions on anyone. Like it's, it's a very vulnerable population. Now, Paisman was associated with one of these homes, if not more. And this did not get widespread media attention because Jersey is so isolated. It's a Channel Island. It's the largest of the Channel Islands, meaning it's between the UK and France. And at the time of his arrest, there were probably around 60,000 people on the entire island. It is under the Queen's rule, but it has a lieutenant governor and it's self-governing. So it is not England proper, if you will. It's its own little thing. And it's very much in the in-between. So even have a liminal island. Right. And so when accounts from the Preferals Children's Home in Jersey began to surface, Paisnell immediately came to mind because his mother-in-law owned it. Her name was Florence Walton, and she was in charge of the home between 1954 and 1964. This is the account of Mr. D, one of the anonymous children who came forward to tell their story. Like as an adult. As an adult. So the account says, Paisnell invited the witness and his brother to come to their home and do farm work. Home was not your standard Norman Rockwell affair. It was a little farm, but it was not wholesome. Mr. D said that there were cats strung from trees. They were dead, dead cats strung from trees. And that once he saw Paisnell strangle a cat with his bare hands. Holy fuck, that's not a good sign. No. And he and his brother were invited to stay the night. 
He recalled waking up one night to see a pair of eyes peering out from behind a rubbery mask. But he was plagued by the beast not only at the home of Paisnel, but even back in La Provence. He said up on the top dormitories, there's an area of cubby halls, and it was wide enough to walk right round all the bedrooms. The landing had a flickering light all the time, and you used to see these eyes appear at the top of the landing, even though it was pitch black. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm sure whoever was doing it was going into one of these cubby holes and crawling around there in the room, and this went on quite regularly. He even claimed that Paisnel's wife took a particular interest in him and would get sexual pleasure from beating him. She would go red in the face with enjoyment, he said. And then he describes one night when he and his brother were staying over at the Paisnels. He says, I was asleep and I felt a presence in there, and it was Paisnel, and he stood staring at me, and he had some kind of a mask on him. I just couldn't stay there any longer. I always sensed Paisnel was evil. You just sensed something pure evil that was going on in that place. Witness later claimed that Paisnel would drive him back to La Provence. He would drive really fast in his gray van at night and switch the lights off. He was just really trying to terrify us. Another scary, awful thing. In addition to the boogeyman costume he carried around with him, he would occasionally dress up as Santa. The other boogeyman. Yeah. No. And he would go and give out sweets to children. And the children were told to call him Uncle Ted. And not only did he provide his Santa service to La Provence, but he also visited Haute de la Garine, which is another children's home in the, in the Jersey area. Now, various La Provence residents came forward. One woman came forward saying that she was sexually abused once a week for almost two years by a man who was related to a staff member. And it lines up with the time that Florence owned the home. Another witness said that Paisnel would persuade children to sit on his knee before attempting to sexually assault them. And witness 201 said that the staff at La Provence used to use corporal punishment on the residents and that they used a belt, a stick, slippers, etc. on my bare backside. And that as a result of the caning, I would have bruising and sometimes bleeding. Now, Paisnel was also the suspect in a murder which took place on New Year's Eve of 1966 when a woman named Tula Honek, who was a Finnish au pair in the area, was killed. She was 20 years old at the time. Now, she was found bludgeoned to death in a field in St. Clement, and it was revealed in 2006 that Paisnel had been the chief suspect at the time. But he was never tried for that. No, he died um, in prison in the, on the Isle of Wight in 1994. None of the crimes that he was tried for were associated with the children's homes. Just to give you an idea about the breadth of his body of work. God, that's disturbing. Now, in addition to the victims that we know of that he directly assaulted, there were two men who were very badly affected by the actions of the Beast of Jersey. One man named Alphonse de Gaslois was hounded for years by investigators. Soon after the first attacks... An admitted eccentric was hounded by local people who believed that he was the beast of Jersey. His home on the island was wrecked and he suffered taunts and even assaults. He was actually arrested and released on due to lack of evidence to escape the accusers. He sold up and lived as a hermit on a tiny island known as seven miles off the Jersey coast. So he literally like moved out to the middle of nowhere. And he was, you think falsely accused Oh, he was. He was accused of the crimes that 
that later the Beast of Jersey was. That Paisnell mm. committed, was found guilty of. And another man named Alan Norton spent 30 years in jail because he was convicted of the murder of his younger sister, who was 11 years old at the time. And she was stabbed to death, and she was also sexually assaulted. Now, throughout the incarceration, he maintained his innocence. Like, I found interviews that were conducted with him while he was incarcerated. And he, like, knowing that he'd been a model prisoner and he was very young when he was taken in, and, like, there was a very good chance for parole if he would admit his crime, say you're sorry, you know, show remorse. He never did. Never did it. And after he got out, he persisted, and he formed a theory that the beast of Jersey was actually responsible for his sister's death and like tried to have DNA testing done and all this stuff it has been a very long quest for him. She was very much within the age range and within the geographical location and the times were right and everything lines up that it could have been Paisnell. So in addition to the children he hurt, he's also, you know, in theory ruined two men's lives on the island. Now, the air hostess who's mentioned in the original article who did testify against him in court said that she was sure that she would have been murdered had she not jumped from the moving car. Oh, wow. And so it does seem that he was capable of extreme violence. Obviously, he's capable of depraved acts, cruelty, like demented individual. But it does not seem like murder is outside the realm of possibility for him, I guess is what I'm saying. He was never tried for murder. He was jailed in 71 uh, for 13 counts of rape, assault, and sodomy and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, he was pulled over because they had barricades up because of an earlier murder that was not related to him. And some accounts surfaced that said that he did not slow down because he was so superstitious that he noticed a cross made for Palm Sunday in the passenger seat of the car. And like, I know, I was like, you're reaching. Like, there's already, like, there's a a secret Satan room. There's like, he, his alibi was that he's in a magical sex cult and this is the uniform. Like, there's enough. There's enough. enough. You don't need the Palm Sunday stuff. Like, come on. I mean, he had the gear with him. I mean, if he got pulled over and they just looked a little bit, they would have found his boogeyman costume. And they did. When they pulled him over, they found it in the boot. Of his car. The boot? I suppose that any car on the other side of the Atlantic does not have a trunk. Just a boot. Just a boot. So the independent Jersey care inquiry was set up and established in order to ascertain what went wrong in the island's care system over many years. And this was established in December of 2010. And it was followed by a formal apology from the island's chief minister to those who suffered abuse at the state's residential care systems. The apology followed the conclusion of an investigation by the states of Jersey police into historical child abuse in a number of institutions in Jersey. The police investigations recorded a total of 553 alleged offenses with 151 named offenders and 192 victims. What a disturbing case. What an example of... The fears that have now come to represent the boogeyman. Not only was he grotesque on the inside, psychologically, but he even went so far as to make it... External. Yeah, a physical representation of the grotesque, of a boogeyman. He led children out of their bedrooms with ropes around their necks. Yeah, and those are the kind of stories that you can't imagine happening... That are our worst fears. And the stories of boogeymen 
do represent some of our greatest fears. You know, whether it be that we are concerned about paternal anxiety or whether we are concerned about the passage of time. The boogeyman is such a potent figure because he's terrifying not only to children, but to adults. He can represent so many things. We tell these stories to our children to keep them in line, but we become fearful when they begin to believe them. We assume this position of, that's just made up. It's made up. Don't worry about it. Those are just willow branches. You're not really hearing what you think you're hearing. No one's looking at you. There's nothing in your closet. Go back to bed. There's nothing to be afraid of. I guess that is just a story. Oh, yeah. Just a story.